Happy Easter, blessed Easter, and whatever else we need to put in front of that. It is Easter. It's the third day that Jesus talked about. It's the day that almost no one understood what he was talking about when he spoke about it. And to really understand and appreciate Easter, the third day, you do have to really reflect on what took place on Friday. Good Friday, as we, as we call it. And in the natural, there was nothing good about it. But in the spiritual, everything about it was good because of what it accomplished, what it represented. This morning, the title of my message is simply, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. And we're going to be looking at John chapter 20 in just a few moments. Friday had passed. God's perfect justice had been paid in full by the work of the cross. To the world, though, including even Jesus' own disciples, it looked like a day of failure, a day of defeat. As a matter of fact, we see in Scripture the disciples were basically hidden away in a locked room with the number of the women who had been following Jesus in fear. By all outward appearances, Satan had won. If we believe there's a spiritual war between God and Satan, on that day, on that Friday, it looked like Satan had won. The victory belonged to Satan. And you can only imagine the disciples and the followers of Jesus the one that they had hitched their wagon to, the one that they had left everything to follow, the one that they had seen do these amazing miracles. They'd listened to the most amazing teaching that had ever been given, the greatest anointing, the most powerful messages ever shared. And they had followed Jesus and believed that he was going to be that Messiah that had been prophesied about for so many years, that they had been waiting for the Jewish people for hundreds of years, and now he's dead. Their hopes literally crushed just as the body of Jesus had been crushed. Jesus' body was first crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'd love to review what I shared last week, but we don't have time. But I encourage you, if you didn't hear last week's message, go to our website. You hear a message about the Father's cup. When Jesus was in the garden in agony, sweating drops of blood, actually clots of blood were falling from him as his body was being crushed internally with the pressure of the Father's cup. That's what he prayed. Remove this cup from me. And what was in the Father's cup? It was the wrath of God, the judgment of God. All of it was going to be poured out upon him. And I believe in the garden, the Father was giving Jesus a picture of what that was really going to be so that he would go to the cross and take that wrath knowing full well what was coming. What agony to sweat the crushing of the pressure of that cup. Three times he prayed for that cup to be removed. But he always finished with saying, not my will be done, but yours, Father. He was crushed in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And then we come to the cross where we normally focus on Good Friday. And most of the time when we talk about the crucifixion, we think of the physical pain, not so much the emotional pain that he went through in the garden. But when you think about the cross, we think about the crushing of his body. It was first crushed and the blood started pouring from his head when that crown of thorns was pressed down on his head. And he started bleeding and the blood is running down his brow and down his face, down his back. And then he's crushed on the cross when they lay him on these two pieces of timber and they take one hand at a a time and they nail that hand to the cross. And when they finish the one hand, they go to the other hand and they nail it to the cross and the blood is running from his hands over the timber and falling to the ground. And he was crushed when they took his feet, laid one over the other and put a spike through his feet. And his feet were bleeding and the blood again was running from the timbers and dripping onto the ground. And then they set him up on the, on the cross and they raised the cross and it, it fell into the hole and he can only imagine the agony, the physical agony on those hands and on those feet. The blood running. He was crushed when they had scourged him before they ever got to the cross. They took that whip and lashed him with lamb's bone in the end, ripping away big chunks of flesh, bleeding all over his body. And there he is, this picture on the cross, physically crushed. We don't talk about the emotional pain and agony that led him to say, Father, why have you forsaken me? And that was the wrath of my sin. Do for my sins the wrath of God, the 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 judgment of God being poured out in wave after wave after wave on Jesus on the cross. He was crushed. And you can only imagine the disciples disciples and the followers of Jesus. Some of them, we don't even know if they were at the cross. They were probably already in hiding. We know John was there. We know there was a group of ladies, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, that was there. Try to imagine what they were going through. Their hopes were crushed, just as Jesus' body was crushed. Their hopes drained from them, I am sure, just as the blood drained from his body and fell to the ground and pooled in the sand. And when we think of the cross, we oftentimes think of a a pretty cross, earrings or necklaces. But it was a picture of horror in the natural. But every single thing that had taken place, everything that had been taking place, everything from Judas betraying him in the garden, everything from his arrest to this mock trial that they had, to, to them screaming and shouting for Barabbas to be freed, to him being hung on a cross between two criminals, to being hung there by nails and spikes, by being crushed. Remember the last thing that bled was his side when they took the sword or a spear of a, a soldier and they punctured his side. If you don't understand the biology of it, when the heart ruptures, the water and the blood separates out and the water and the blood came from his side. He was crushed and all of it 
was according to the plan that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had agreed to before the foundations of the world in eternity past. So even though they're standing there, they don't understand. And sadly, I don't think we understand what really took place. But it was all part of the plan. It was probably, if we begin to understand it, it was probably the greatest demonstration of love you could ever imagine. The plan of redemption, the plan of redeeming you and me from the power of sin and death was unfolding before their very eyes. And this was his only son, Jesus, that he had spent eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, eternity together in fellowship, and now he was separated from the Father because he had to receive the wrath and the judgment that belonged to us. He couldn't look upon the sin. What love? If you see nothing else when you think of the crucifixion, think of how much love was being demonstrated for us who deserved none of it. But he poured it out upon us as he poured out his blood on that cross. Death hadn't won, even though it looked like it. Satan hadn't won, even though it looked like it. Everything was under the control of a sovereign God. Satan really was nothing but a pawn in the hand of our Lord. God knew. Jesus knew. And the Holy Spirit knew. Really, what was taking place was the fulfillment of a prophecy from way back in the book of Genesis. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned? And God is speaking to the servant and he prophesies, Oh, you will bruise the heel of the woman, Jesus, but he will crush the serpent's head. And at that moment, on that cross, the serpent's head was being crushed under the feet of Jesus. Death and sin and the power of them was being broken before their very eyes. And there is, and I mentioned this last week, there is sometimes some confusion about where the victory really took place. There was no mythical battle that took place in hell. Some people say that the cross represents the defeat of Jesus, but then he descended into hell and he he fought for everything he was worth for three days until he finally defeated Satan and got the victory. That is nonsense. Nonsense. The victory was won on the cross. The battle against hell and Satan was before he died on that cross. As a matter of fact, a scripture that many of you will be familiar with in Colossians 2 verse 15, and it says, Having disarmed all rulers powers, principalities, authorities. He made a public display of them. This is in reference to Jesus and what he did to the demons and Satan himself. And it says he did all of this triumphing over them by the cross. Not in hell, by the cross. The victory was won on that cross. When Jesus said those words, he spoke seven times on the cross. And the sixth time he spoke, he said these words, It is finished. It is finished. What was finished? Everything that needed to be accomplished for the redemption of you and me, the defeat of sin and death, defeat of Satan, was done. Look at the scriptures in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, 
to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Isn't that amazing? To fulfill the scripture. It had been prophesied that he would speak those words. And he's saying, it's finished. But so that all the scripture, in other words, every I is dotted, every T is crossed, that there is no doubt that every single prophecy has been fulfilled. He asked and said, I am thirsty. And it says, then a jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour, the sour wine, he said, it is finished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. In another gospel we see, after he said, it is finished, he said those seventh words, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And he didn't just die in agony. He just lowered his head. It was done. It was finished. The word is, it is finished, is only used, and the Greek word is only used two places in Scripture, and both places are in this Scripture we just looked at. When once it's translated into the English words, when all things had been accomplished. And the other is the phrase, it is finished. And the word is teteleste, teteleste. And what that word means in the Greek is, it has been and always will remain finished. It was done on the cross. I came across this little, it's actually a song, I don't know who wrote it, but I wanted to share it right here because I just love what it says, whether it fits in my sermon or not. To tell us day, it is finished. The work is now forever done. To tell us day, it is finished. Christ, the victory he has won. Disease and sickness now are broken. In his wounds, we now are healed. In the cross, our God has spoken. God's great act of love revealed. The cup is emptied. Jesus drank it. He engulfed our wrath and pain. Sin is banished. Hell is vanquished. He has wiped out all our shame. Powers of darkness, they are conquered. By the cross where blood was shed, Christ has triumphed over Satan. He has crushed the devil's head. Amen. And yet, Jesus was dead. His body laid in a borrowed tomb, stretched out on a slab of rock, with a great big rock rolled in front of the tomb so nobody could get in and nobody could get out. As I said earlier, the disciples and some of the women, including his mother Mary, they had gathered together behind closed doors, despondent, confused, fearful, and pretty hopeless. They didn't understand the victory. They didn't understand what had been accomplished. And they certainly didn't understand what was about to happen. Because the third day changed everything. That Sunday morning changed everything. It's the most amazing proclamation that's ever been. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote these words in regard to the resurrection. He said, The cross was the victory won, and the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. John Piper wrote in 50 Reasons Why Jesus Came to Die, 
The resurrection was the reward and vindication of Christ's achievement in death. It was the public declaration of God's endorsement. This he gave by raising him from the dead. And the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 1 verse 4 that the resurrection was God's grand announcement declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So we're going to take a brief look through John chapter 20. It's about the resurrection. You can read a lot of it in other Gospels. And the best way to read it is put them all together so you get a full picture of what took place. But as I read through it, I'm going to pay some special attention to a couple of phrases that were spoken by a really unlikely candidate to speak them. So we're going to read through John chapter 20, starting at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, and she saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. And so she ran, and she came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That would be John. And said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead, faster than Peter, and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And Simon Peter, therefore, he came, following him, and he entered into the tomb, and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered in also, and he saw and he believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. Now don't be confused. This isn't Mary, the mother of Jesus. This is Mary Magdalene. And when she stooped and looked into the tomb, she beheld two angels in white, sitting one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been laying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around, and she beheld Jesus standing there, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. Just spoke her name. And she turned to him in Hebrew and said, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brethren and say these words to them. I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things 
to her. Mary Magdalene. In this, in John's message of that morning, other than Jesus, Mary Magdalene is the focus. And that is unusual. Why her? Think about it for a moment. All of the disciples, all of the followers, including the chosen 11, Judas was now gone, and it's Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene, and if you read about her in Luke chapter 8, you'll discover Mary Magdalene, or Mary of Magdala. God had ministered to her through Jesus. Jesus had ministered to this woman, and it says he had cast out of her seven demons. And it's interesting in the Scripture, we don't think this way, but if you if you look at Scripture, Jesus often just looked at casting out demons as healing. Not some big deal, not some dramatic event, but he treated it almost as a disease, you know. We, we can look at people or fear, do I have a demon? And it's like something's all our fault. And sometimes we've done some foolish things. But the reality is Jesus looked at it as healing. And he had poured out his healing on Mary Magdalene. And she was set free of seven demons. And then we don't see much about her. We don't hear her name until the cross. And in the Gospels, we see in the, when they're talking about the crucifixion, it said, and there off to the side stood a group of women, Mary the mother of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. She's back on the scene the woman who had been set free of demons. And here we see her again on Sunday morning, the third day, the day that everybody, if they would have only understood, I mean, they should have been camped out at the tomb waiting to see how this is going to happen. God, wouldn't you love to have been there? Soldiers didn't enjoy it much. I'd have loved it. But they didn't get it. They didn't know what was about to happen. And it says Mary Magdalene. Why? She had gotten up early and went to the tomb. She wasn't locked behind a closed door filled with fear. She had been touched by Jesus. She had experienced his healing power. She had surrendered herself to him and had followed him and served him in whatever way they could. And she wasn't about to quit because he was in a grave. And she got up, it says, in that first morning, and she went there. In verse 1, Sunday morning, she's on her way to the tomb. In verse 2, she returns to the disciples. And she reports to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. And if you know from the other Gospels, that didn't go over very well. Matter of fact, in one of them it says, the disciples didn't believe her. They thought it was nothing but nonsense. Can't you almost see them in their despair, their despondency, their fear? And here comes a woman. And the woman is going to be the one delivering the message to the disciples. And of all people, it's Mary Magdalene, the one who had had all the demons. 
They didn't believe her. And then I want to drop down to verse 10. Peter and John decide to go check it out. I personally think John was younger than Peter because he beat him to the tomb. But he was always also more timid than Peter. He got to the tomb and said, I ain't, no, he didn't say I ain't going in there. But he stopped. Peter, bless his heart, we all know he loved to run through walls. He went blowing right past John and he goes in the tomb and there, is, there it is. He's gone. There lays the grave claws wrapped, laying on a stone. And off to the side, it appears that the, the head covering that they wrapped around the head, it, was, it said rolled up. Some say folded up. It was as if Jesus himself had just gently unwound them, folded them up, and put them off to the side. But whatever happened, he was gone. But notice what happened. Mary, didn't just, Mary Magdalene just didn't deliver the message to the disciples. She came back. She wasn't satisfied or content to realize that Jesus' body was gone and I don't know where they laid him. She says, I'm going to go find out. So she follows Peter and John back to the tomb looking for Jesus. In spite of the circumstances, in spite of what she had seen with her natural eyes of the crucifixion, his death, his suffering, his anguish. And despite having already looked in the tomb and knowing the body was gone, she wasn't going to quit looking for Jesus. She wasn't going to let the circumstances change her mission, her focus. She was looking for her Lord. In verse 11 and 12, it tells us that Mary was weeping. And it's interesting to me how many times it's pointed out to us that she was weeping. She's weeping, it says, and she looks into the tomb. And she sees it empty. But she sees two angels, so it's not completely empty. One of the angels sitting at where Jesus' feet would have been, one where his head would have been. Two angels. And the angels look at her and all, they say, why are you weeping? Not what are you doing here? Not who are you looking for. Why are you weeping? I believe in her weeping, her compassion, her love was being evidenced. Anybody who could see, including the angels. And Mary replies to him, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where to find him. I don't know where they've laid him. I don't know where he is, but I know he's out there somewhere and I'm not going to be satisfied until I find him. I'm not going to lock myself behind closed doors in fear. I'm not going to get despondent and filled with despair. I'm going to find him, even if it's his body. In verses 14 through 16, this is where Jesus speaks to Mary. And we could talk a lot about why she didn't recognize him, the new body that Jesus had after the resurrection. But suffice to say, we see she did not recognize who he was. And again, what does he ask her? Why are you weeping? And who is it you're looking for? I'm pretty sure he knew why she was weeping. And I'm pretty sure he knew who she was looking for. 
I think it's significant that we are told those things again. She was looking for the Lord despite all the circumstances, and she was moved by compassion and love for Jesus, for who He was and for what He had done in her own life. He had basically given her new life through the deliverance from seven demons. And then he just simply says her name, Mary. And instantly she recognized that voice. I believe she recognized the inflection in that voice. I believe she recognized the love and compassion in that voice, in the same voice that had cast those demons out of her and gave her healing. And she instantly knew it was Jesus. And depending on your translation, some translations he says, don't touch me. I, I think that's wrong. I believe it's more accurate. He says, you've got to let me go now, please. Quit clinging to me. I've got to go to the Father. My body's not been glorified yet. But she was clinging to him. She found Jesus in the midst of all the storms of what had taken place since that Friday. And to me, it is so interesting that of all the followers on the planet at that time, it wasn't Mary, his mother. It wasn't Peter. It wasn't John. And it wasn't any other of the other nine disciples. It was of all people for him, God the Father, to allow to see Jesus first after his resurrection was Mary Magdalene. I don't get it. But that's who he chose. The one who was diligent. The one who was looking. The one who wasn't going to let fear stop her from finding her Lord. He reveals himself to her. And not only that, and if you know the culture of the day, the next thing's even more mind-boggling. He says, Mary, you are now my messenger. You are going to go and deliver a message to my disciples. Mary Magdalene, the one who had been demon-possessed, a woman is going to bring the message and give the briefest but greatest teaching ever given. I have seen the Lord. He is risen. I have seen him with my very own eyes. And even with Mary's eyewitness testimony, in the Gospel of Luke, it tells us they still didn't believe her. And it wasn't until later that evening when Jesus appeared in the midst of them and stood before them all. I love what's written about the resurrection in all of the Gospels, particularly fond of this one today, this year. And sometimes I just ask myself as I'm reading these, I'm like, why is that in there? Why did, why did that get put in? Mary Magdalene. Think about it. 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this woman. And we don't see her mentioned many times in the Bible. 
And I think one of the reasons these things are included is obviously to teach and encourage us, but I want to share two scriptures at the end of chapter 20. I think I have them on a slide. John tells us why he wrote this and all the rest of the things that he wrote in his gospel. And this is something we all need to hear. He says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But if they had been written so that you may believe, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, in believing you may have life in his name. John is saying, there's a reason I'm telling you all this. I'm telling you all this as an eyewitness to the life of Christ. I was there. I ate with this guy. I walked the roads with this guy. I slept on the ground next to this guy. I was there when they nailed him to the cross. I was the one that Jesus looked at down there standing at the foot of the cross and said, your mother and gave me the responsibility for his own earthly mother. I was there for all of it. I'm telling you all this so that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And by believing, you might have eternal life. He doesn't list a long list of grocery lists of things that you have to do to earn eternal life. Just believing in Jesus and who he was, repenting of your sins. And then in verse The next verse, verse 31, excuse me, the next verse I want to show you is in 1 John. And this is the same John. And he's writing again, and he says it so much more clearly. And if you've been in individual meetings with me and I ask you about your salvation, I usually get around to how do you know you're saved? And then I watch you stumble and sweat and try to look for the perfect answer. And I tell you, it's simple. It's just simple. Don't think too hard. I know you know this. But John writes this in 1 John chapter 5, verse things, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh, it, it makes me nervous when you look back at me and say, well, I hope I'm saved. Hope you're saved. How can you be certain? Do more good works? Study more? Pray more? Read the Bible more? Get rebaptized? Get confirmed again? What? None of those things. You can know that you're saved if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Lamb of God who came to earth on a mission to go to the cross and take on all the wrath, all the judgment, and all the penalty of sin. You know, if you read in the Bible everything that there is about hell, the torments of hell, the fires of hell, all of that fell on Jesus on the cross. All of it. Wave after wave of wrath, punishment. It all fell on him. So I don't have to endure it. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, that's what your future will be. But if you have, or if you haven't, and now's the time for you to do it, it's really quite simple. We need to repent and acknowledge that we're sinners. That we have sinned and that separated us from a holy God. And that there truly was nothing you could do to earn your way back into his good graces. It could only happen by a sacrifice 
The Bible tells us in Romans that everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In chapter 6, it says, and the penalty for that sin is death. Eternal hell. Where we will experience non-believers, where we will experience everything that God has planned for Satan and all the demons. But he said, I took it all for you at the cross if you'll simply receive my gift. And by accepting that gift, that he was my propitiation, in other words, he was the sacrifice that drove the wrath of God away from me and you, died in our place, and surrender your life to him. Now, some of us think that sounds like a penalty, surrendering our life to somebody else. Don't let that lie keep you from accepting the greatest gift ever. It's the greatest life you could ever live. John 10 tells us that he came to give us life, and not only just life, but the abundant life in Christ. Abundant life. What you think you have to give up to be a follower of Christ is absolutely nothing compared to what you gain as a follower of Christ. It doesn't even enter your mind that you sacrificed to become a Christian because you didn't. He did. I want to get back to Mary Magdalene because I think when I was reading this this week and last week, I was thinking about Mary Magdalene in terms of those two phrases. Basically, I paraphrase it instead of I don't know where they've laid him is I can't find him. I don't sense him. I don't see him. I don't know if he's really there. And then at the end, she says, I have seen the Lord. You know, Christians, as Christians, I think most of us get at that place at different times of our life, different circumstances, different trials, different tests, where we're crying out just like Mary did. Where are you? I don't feel your presence. I'm not sure you're hearing my prayers. I'm not even sure you're aware of what's going on in my life. Where are you? I don't know where to find you. Most of us have been there at one time or another. When those things in life that happen that seem too great for us to handle in our own strength. And we know that there's only one place to turn but it seems like we can't find him. One of the lessons I take from this for me is is a reminder. I believe Mary was so intent because in part she had experienced that unbelievable healing from Jesus. And then I think about the healing I've experienced as a believer. When I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior, Mary's life may have been changed, but man, oh man, so was mine. So was yours. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you know that new birth, talk about a healing. And I look at Mary and I see how faithful she was. I'm not going to get my eyes on the cross. I'm not going to worry about anything else. I'm focusing on the Lord. I'm going to find him. 
And for her, it was even if it's a dead body, I'm going to find him. And I think that's the lesson for us. When we think of the resurrection, we need to realize that act of love is a demonstration of God's acceptance of his sacrifice, but it's also a demonstration of how much he loves you. How much he loves you. He says, when he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, guess what? He meant it. The Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. We need to not become despondent. We need to not enter into despair. We need to not be filled with fear. Oh, trust me, there's normal emotions. There's normal emotions we go through that aren't pleasant at that time. But we need to keep our eyes focused on Jesus. Even when you don't see him working, he's working. We don't understand what he's doing, but if we just keep looking and putting our faith and trust in him, his unfathomable love for us. We will achieve the victory because he achieves the victory for us.